HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Speaking Broadly is brought to you by Red Clay Hot Sauce. Learn more at redclayhotsauce.com. HRN is offering complimentary business memberships to 50 Black, Indigenous, people of color owned food businesses this summer. The deadline to apply is July 31st. Each business membership of $500 value is an advertising opportunity that will allow businesses disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 to connect with HRN's listening community and promote their work. To apply and review the terms and conditions, go to heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview someone who I admire, who inspires me with their words of wisdom. And today, I have a pretty mystery, who's a chef and activist, probably best known for their Oakland restaurant, Juhu Beach Cut. They're currently working at Radical Family Farms in Sebastopol, California, growing amazing Asian vegetables. Welcome, Preeti. Thank you. We first met at FAB in Charleston, which is an industry conference, and you gave one of the most moving keynotes that I have ever heard. I was moved because you were creating a roadmap to being an anti-racist in this country, and this was a year ago when that word was not the word on everybody's lips and in every article. And I'd like to begin with the quote that you began that keynote with. I'm perhaps paraphrasing, but if you're wondering what you would have done during slavery, or you were wondering what you would have done in Nazi Germany, you're doing that right now. Tell me like, what that quote means to you and why you use that to launch your keynote. Because we are living in those times. I think that there's this idea that somehow those were just those old days where people were oppressed and somehow we're all past that, that we're living in some post-racial, post-sexist, homophobic, transphobic society. And that's just not reality for most people who are not white or straight in America. Yet there's this idea that somehow all of that stuff is in the past and yet black people are being killed by the police every day and getting away with it. Trans women are being just disappeared 
being found in rivers. And we're all just going about our lives, posting photos of what we had for dinner. I went to school for social justice. It's always been a part of my life. I don't know if it's just the hand I was dealt that I've always felt like we all deserve more and, or, or what, but it's always been a part of who I am. I'd love to delve into that a little bit because, as you say, it could be the hand that you're dealt, but it's more than that, right? It's, the, it's your family. It's your early experiences. Are there any of those that stand out? Uh, well, there's the one that I mentioned in the <laughs> keynote. I mentioned this thing that happened when I was like in junior high and I got in my first and I think only like physical fight in my life. It started and stopped on the same day. But yeah, there was this kid uh, in school and I was like not cool, by no means like tough, etc. And uh, this kid, Aaron Fisher, I, I love really just saying his name because I'm sure he's still out there wearing a MAGA hat. Like every single day, he would say these awful things to every single person. Like my friend Danny, who is Jewish, he would say awful things to him. Just every single person, whatever it was that didn't put them in that like straight white man, everyone else was up for making fun of and whatever that thing was, whatever made them different was what he was going to exploit. And, and for whatever reason, this day he decided to say something to me. And it was really random, like this thing about me being a Hindu twit. And I just like lost it. It was not premeditated at all. But it was also like he'd been doing this every day. And I was sort of like, is everyone in this class just going to let this kid do this every single day? Pick on every single person who isn't, you know, fits this whatever common denominator of person. And so I just lost it. I started pushing and shoving him <laughs> and punching him. <laughs> Um, this like skinny, nerdy, I mean, I probably weighed under 90 pounds. And, and so, yeah, I, so I, I started punching him and, and then I just, re and then that like clicked in my head, like what I was doing. And I just looked at him and I was like, if you say anything else to anyone in this class ever again, I'm going to kick your ass. And, and, you know, I guess part of me was like, that was like the me coming out of like all of the things sort of my parents had raised me to just be a quiet, good girl. But I mean, I was never quiet. But, you know, I was always the like, you know, talks too much, visits too much with friends in class kid. <laughs> so so the principal called my mom and was like, your, your daughter got in a fight. Um, and she was like, oh, my God, is she OK? And the principal was like, well, she kind of started it, which actually I didn't start it. This kid started it. He had been starting it for days. And I've also learned to channel my anger in different ways. <laughs> but I started the physical aspect of the situation. <laughs> My sisters get home from school and they they were both in high school and they just were like like older than me and they were like, Yeah, you rock. That was awesome. My mom was just like, Don't encourage her. And my dad was on call that night. Uh so he came home the next morning and I was like in my bedroom and he just stopped at my doorway and he just looked at me and he goes, I heard you got in a fight and I said, Yeah, and he just went, Good. And he just kept walking. Uh <laughs> I mean, obviously, he'd been filled in on the details of, of what and how it all went down. I wanted to hear more about that, because when I've heard you tell that story, and I've heard it a couple of times, I always want to know more about him. That's such a strong, clear, simple response. And it feels to me like it wraps up an entire world of injustice and experience. And I wonder, like, what is or was your dad like and what what was that household like well uh we're we're very similar in a lot of ways first being that we look a lot alike i basically have been called nani urban by which means little urban uh since i was like three 
And I, you know, for the longest time I was a kid, I was like, what does that even mean? I don't understand why everyone says I look like my dad. And then I look at photos of myself when I'm in my twenties and I'm like, oh my God, wow. And especially since, you know, once I was able to sort of be in charge of my own presentation, which is always been masculine. It's like, whoa, wow. Yeah. <laughs> we look exactly alike. Um, in fact, I had photos of him in his twenties in the restaurant. And I remember once uh, one of my staff were like dusting the photos and they were like, this is you. And I'm like, no, it's not me. It's my dad. And they're like, no, it's you. And I'm like, no, it's my dad in his twenties. Look, it's Africa. There's palm trees and it's black and white. There's like a Studebaker in there. It's not me. <laughs> But, you know, I'd say the one thing is, yeah, we're both very extroverted. I think my dad has always had to kind of toe the line, though, and just not rock the boat. And I think that that's something that his sort of way he was raised was, you know, he's the oldest of six kids. And so it was like, okay, you are going to like hell or high water, study your ass off and become a doctor and get to America. That's the plan. And so there was a, a tremendous amount of pressure on him to just kind of put his head down, not rock the boat and study hard. I mean, I think that for a lot of folks of his generation as immigrants, that was their struggle was, it's not that they didn't see the injustices or experience them, but the way that they were raised and what they kind of understood or were told was just put your head down and don't worry about it. Like my parents never talked to us about racism and stuff like that. I mean, stuff happened to us. I mean, I remember when I was like a kid, in fact, this came up recently because uh, we were talking about Charleston and Myrtle Beach. I remember like whenever I bring up Myrtle Beach, like my parents are like, you know what happened there, right? We were like followed and chased by skinheads. And I was like a little kid. And, you know, I mean, there's things that like we never talked about. Like we lived in a townhouse in Toledo, Ohio before my parents bought our first home in the 80s. And like we went on vacation, we came back and there was like black tar like all over our front door. Just like things like that, that they just never kind of like sat down and were like, hey, so this is what's going on. They just kind of like, you know, okay, moving on, get the door clean, get a new door moving, you know. Um, And I mean, I literally remember when I was like in my early 20s and like started, you know, moved to San Francisco, started going to college. And I came home and I was like, mom and dad, racism. And they were like, um, yeah. And I was like, wait, but why didn't you tell us? And they're like, well, we didn't want to, you know, they want to protect you. Um, And their way of protecting was to just not talk about it. And you've taken the opposite road, right? Like your father felt it wasn't appropriate to speak and you feel you have an imperative to speak. Totally. Yeah. I think it's our duty. And I will say that I have the privilege to do that. And he didn't necessarily. And you, you've said that you do have the privilege, but you also don't have the ability to hide. I've heard you say, I'm out there. Like you see who I am and I can't hide from that. You don't want to. I wonder, like, what are your thoughts on that? I don't think I've ever told this story, but uh, when I was like maybe 18, 17 or 18, my sister and I went to Lollapalooza and I wore a like white t-shirt with just like red rims on the arms and neck. And I took a piece of duct tape and I just wrote the word dyke across it. And this was like 1993. And uh, it was like so powerful because it was like, yeah, what are you going to do? What are you going to say? And there was like only the whole time one like kid that was like, oh, dyke. And I'm like, And I just looked at him. I was like, yep. Like, what else you got? So for me, I feel like it's, yeah, I don't have the ability to hide. I don't have the ability to pass for anything. 
except for who I am. I mean, I get confused for a lot of different things because being a person who's like brown and gender non-conforming, you just like, you know, there's so many different boxes people are trying to put you in to try to suss you out, figure you out. But to me, it's like, I, I, I can't, like, this is just who I am. Like, I would go crazy if I had to try to hide who I am. What about the people who do go crazy trying to hide who they are? What do you say to them? Like, what, how do you help? I mean, I just think that there's a tremendous freedom in just being who you are. I, I mean, I remember when I started my pop-up, like, to take it even just out of identity, but just more just like your profession or the things you have to sort of uphold to. And I remember... You know, I worked for Bon Appetit Management Company, which is generally, you know, a pretty great company. I, lo I love the CEO, Fidel, is a friend of mine. But, you know, there's a certain, like, corporate line you had to toe. And I would, I did a lot of PR and marketing stuff for them because, you know, I'm pretty good at talking. And, you know, there was a lot of, like, rules we had to follow of, like, you had to do your media training. And, like, there, you know, just like anything when you're representing a company or something. And I remember after I had left and I had announced my pop-up, Juhu Beach Club before it was a brick and mortar restaurant it was a pop up in a liquor store in San Francisco and I like got on the phone with I can't remember who it was from like Eater and it like dawned on me in the first like couple minutes I'm like oh my god I can say whatever the fuck I want I'm not answering to anyone else except for myself if this like plummets my career because of something I say I'm the only one to blame and and I think that also like being a person who you know checks a lot of boxes and sort of is marginalized in many ways in terms of my identity. I feel like it's almost like a, what are you going to gain from trying to be something that you're not? Why are you trying to appeal to your oppressors? Why are you trying to be validated by their totally biased validation structure? Why is that important to you? Why do you even want a seat at that table? Like fuck that table. The fact that that table doesn't have a seat for you means that that table is invalid. Who cares about that table? Let's make our own table. Let's just like put this like tapestry down and fold our legs and have a picnic because that's going to be way better than trying to have a seat at that table just to get to that table and be probably disrespected and still not valued as much as you deserve to be. That brings to mind some of the things that you've talked about in fine dining and the white male dominated chef world. What are your thoughts on that at the moment? I mean, honestly, I, I could just say burn it down. At the end of the day, like rich people are going to pay money for chefs to create, you know, I don't know, a piece of smoked mackerel hanging from a string with some essential oil floating up onto it. Like, and they're going to pay ridiculous amounts of money and buy $5,000 bottles of wine to drink while they're doing it. Fine. I just don't want to see our industry continue to exalt those people as our leaders. That's the issue I have. It seems that the question of who are the leaders of tomorrow is absolutely up for grabs right now. What do you see in terms of the future of leaders for the industry? Who do you feel is poised to really help get to the next set of opportunities and possibilities? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping it's going to be a lot of people and, you know, I hope I'm one of them. I know my friend Rima Seal is doing amazing things and, you know, she's really in the thick of it. Having her restaurants just turn one of them into a community kitchen, continuing to feed people and grind every day and also try to continue to reimagine 
what this industry could look like. I also just think that we need to just talk about what that means. What does the industry mean? Because I think that like it's sort of that zoom out to that place of like, okay, it's not about just like knocking the white guy off the pedestal and putting a brown woman there and saying, okay, now we're good. What are what's we? What are we talking about? It's recentering who should really be at the forefront. You know, I think about like the Black Lives Matter movement and what they've done in like, they're like a leaderless movement. Yes, there's these three women who are amazing that are the founders of the term and the hashtag and they're all social justice organizers and brilliant. But the point is that it's not about one person that's going to save us all. It's about every single one of us looking at what is it that we do and what is the point of it? I mean, COVID has really shown us and exposed all of these inequities in our systems and just giving us this sort of window into a deeper thing. Many of us already knew, but now a lot more people get it. It's exposed it in a way where some of us who've been saying this stuff for a long time to deaf ears, those ears are opening up. <clears throat> and so to me, it's like, what what did we do as an industry? Like, what is this industry about? Is it about fancy little microgreens? Or is it about like feeding people and nourishing people? Food is an essential thing. We are an essential service. What does that mean? If restaurants are an essential service, why aren't they being subsidized by the government? Why aren't small restaurants getting the type of tax breaks that Twitter gets? You know, the inequities even within the chefs that have tried to work within the system. You know, I mean, Thomas Keller doesn't care about you and your 40-seat restaurant. He cares about his business interruption insurance. You know, all of these really huge chefs and restaurateurs got their PPP. And and it's the, it's the little guys, the women of color, the people who've always been helping their community that are still just helping their community. I mean, I didn't see anyone in my community of women chefs, LGBT chefs, POC chefs stomping around about PPP. They're too busy just feeding their community because there's an emergency and that's what we do. I keep thinking that, as you were saying, COVID offers an opportunity. It definitely has laid bare the inequities. I think it's going to change the relationship of the diner to the restaurant, but it also, I think, is going to change the relationship of the workers to the restaurants. And I think when we talk about sustainable restaurants going forward, we're talking about restaurants, as you've often said, you want to pay a fair wage to the people who are working for you. You want to create sustainability for the earth and the humans as you're feeding and nourishing people. What type of changes along those lines do you feel like you'll see? I have to be really honest and first and foremost say that I haven't always paid people equitably. Like I said, I'm in my 40s, so I've been in this industry for almost 20 years. And I was taught a lot of things that I now see are not okay. And, and, and I was taught these things in a way that was like, this is just how it is. This is how it works. You know, don't question it. That's just, just what it is. Um, and now I feel like I'm in a place where I recognize how those inequities really harmed an intentional culture. You know, when I think about whether it's at Bon Appetit or with my own restaurants or restaurants I worked at prior, how those inequities of people getting paid properly, valued for their work on every level, really 
just no matter how much management was like, hey, we're all really nice people and we're working really hard and we're trying to take care of each other and show compassion and all this stuff, just continue to erode that culture because of these deeper inequities. If you think of our society right now, it's like socially liberal, financially conservative. No, you can't do that. It used to be something that people thought was possible, but it's just not. You can't be nice to everybody, but still take two thirds of the pie for yourself. With that, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Preeti Mistry. episode of Speaking Broadly is brought to you by Red Clay Hot Sauce. Red Clay was founded by self-proclaimed stubborn chef Jeff Ryan. One day while working on a new oyster dish in Charleston, South Carolina, Jeff created his signature flavor. It's a blend of Fresno chilies which changed the oysters without stealing the spotlight. Since then, Red Clay has expanded its line of modern southern hot sauces and added barrel-aged hot honeys. Every flavor is crafted with love and cooked with culinary expertise. Every batch is balanced and flavor forward. I know because when I got my Verde hot sauce, it was literally gone in a day. A bottle used by my family at breakfast, lunch, and dinner on everything from eggs to tacos to steak. I didn't set it up that way, but somehow it was gone. Red clay hot sauces are sustainably produced in a tiny town in South Carolina. They're crafted with just a few ingredients, namely southern peppers and high-quality vinegar aged in bourbon barrels. Unlike most hot sauces that boil their peppers, red clay cold presses theirs. This allows the natural flavors of the Fresnos, Carolina Reapers, and Habaneros to shine. Red clay sauces have won over a lot of discerning palates, not just mine, because they bring a heat that puts flavor before fire. Take a look at their collection of southern sauces and hot honeys at redclayhotsauce.com. Use the code DANA25 for 25% off your first order. Valid until August 31st, 2020. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. My guest today is the extraordinary Preeti Mistry. Let's talk about food a little bit. I've never had the pleasure of having your food. I look forward to when and if you open in Oakland again. It looks like you have a couple of incredible projects ahead. I'd love to hear your thoughts on simplicity, culture, and food. I mean, I think that, you know... A lot of white people and also men in particular, there's this assumption when white people, people in places of privilege do something simple. It's like, oh, look at that. It's so simple. It's so elegant. And when like someone like myself does something like that, it's like, oh, that's all they can do. Like it looks basic. I mean, here's a really simple example. After we closed the restaurant and I was doing a lot of different events with my book, Juhu Beach Club Cookbook, 
I did an amazing collaboration at Tartine Manufactory with the chef, uh, Krista Chase. And I remember my wife showing up with friends for this like awesome collab. And she was like, oh my God, Juhu food at Tartine prices. <laughs> and, and that's the whole thing. It's like, you know, we could charge these prices and no one was complaining like, oh my God, $85 for a steak. No, they were like buying the steak. So to me, it's like, yeah, if you go to Tartine Manufactory and you get a ribeye with potatoes and a sauce for $85, no one's batting an eyelash. No, Everyone's just like, yeah, that's just what it costs. And yet it's like, okay, that exact thing, aside from the piece of meat, it's like my spice blend, my potatoes, my coconut chutney that was the sauce that Krista and I came up with that dish. And if you tried to do that in my restaurant and charge even $50 people would lose their minds. So, I mean, it's a very simple thing. I mean, you know, Krista as well, it's why we get along so well. I think we have a similar style of just a rustic California, simple, organic, let the ingredients shine approach. I, I watched the Tony Bourdain San Francisco episode. On that episode, he asks you, is your food authentic? How would you answer that? It's 100% authentic. Of course it's authentic. I mean, what I, what I said on the show was if, you're, if you say that my food is not authentic, you're saying I'm not authentic. This is my experience. I'm sorry, mine's a little more exciting and varied than yours was, but this is how my brain works because I was born in London. I visited India when I was four. My parents lived in Trinidad and took us there to visit when I was 12. You know, I've, I've eaten a lot of different stuff. I had a, the privilege through my early 20s of my wife having this opportunity with her job to go to Europe and we traveled a ton. Like last winter I was in Thailand and I remember like at least like once a day I would just look at my wife and be like, we are so fucking lucky. I just want to be clear how lucky we are to be having and have had all of the experiences that we've had. And all those things that the kids made fun of me in school for when I was seven or 11, like Aaron Fisher, that has made my experience richer. I have more to draw from when I think about a dish and all of that goes into my food. And so that's what it is. Like when I think about Juhu, yeah, fine. There's always going to be haters and people are like, oh, where's the chicken tikka masala? And it's like, yeah, go fuck yourself. Like <laughs> this is real. <laughs> and and it's, it's lived experience on a plate, you know, or people look on the wall in the restaurant and they would be like, oh, why aren't there? I made a point of like not putting like a bunch of those sort of fetishistic photos of like, first of all, all the photos are people I actually know and my family. Like they're not just like random, you know, like Indian dude, like squatting, smoking a beady or like random women carrying pots on their heads that I don't know. <laughs> like, it's actually my family and friends. And, and I, I really didn't want a lot of photos from India because the point of my food is not trying to recreate something that exists in India or existed in India. It's about the journey. It's about like, and this is a thing, right? So like there's all of us people out here who, you know, were never truly American or never truly Indian or British or what have you. But this is its own thing. And it's its own experience. And it leads to its own food. Like I think about both my book and like I think about like Priya, Krishna, I mean, her book is a little bit more accessible in terms of the recipes, uh, which is great, because it's like, this is like a, a different generation. It's a generation that was like born in the West and has all of these different influences. And this is our food. So you opened your 
restaurants in uh, in Oakland, and you are close enough to walk to work. And that's unusual because mostly chefs are priced out of the neighborhoods where they do open restaurants, which made you in some ways a gentrifier in Oakland, which is something that you have strong opinions about. I'd love to hear you talk about gentrification in the restaurant and your thoughts. I mean, I think that gentrification, first of all, I mean, it's a very complicated word and obviously has a very negative connotation. Um, and I'm not like trying to be like, yeah, gentrification's great. But I do think that it, it's more complicated than just saying that it's good or bad. Because I think that what it is, is that there's a difference between being a gentrifier and a colonizer. And I feel like those things get confused. Like when we opened Juhu, which is now uh, Fob Kitchen, everybody said that restaurant was cursed. It had been closed for over a year. So it's an empty space that's just sitting there dead. We all want to see everything be vibrant in our neighborhoods. It's not just rich people and white people that want to see the empty you know, corner have vibrancy in life. We all want that. We all want nice things. I always make this joke about, you know, Tammy Faye Baker said this thing, like, just because I'm a Christian, I doesn't mean I don't like nice things. And I have ever since, like, I always make this joke with my wife. I'm always like, just because I'm a lesbian doesn't mean I don't like nice things. We all want nice things. Like, just because you live in a neighborhood where the the local median income is lower than the neighborhood next door doesn't mean that you don't want to see a nice coffee shop or restaurant to go to. It's how you go about it. I mean, one of the first things is you have folks that don't even live in that area and they're just opening a business there because of the cheaper rent. And, and, and their expectation is that they're drawing people to this neighborhood that don't live there. And I find that very insidious. I mean, there's a lot of folks out there that quite honestly, I would consider colleagues of mine, you know, most people would think are very fine, good liberal people, nice liberal white people that literally have this mentality of like, oh, we don't live here. We don't think we're serving the people who live here. We're trying to get people to come here in their Ubers and BMWs. Like, I don't understand that. To me, that's colonization. That's like plunking a casino down in the desert. You're just like taking advantage of a neighborhood that has empty storefronts as opposed to like, okay, I see these empty storefronts. I want to do something here, but I also want to be very clear about the neighborhood. Like, I feel like both restaurants that we opened, we were very clear about like how we were going to serve the community. So first and foremost, knowing who is in the community. And then I think the second thing that a lot of people lose sight of is that they just they just forget about all the folks that can't afford to eat at their restaurant. They're like, okay, well, you know, we can only price the food as accessibly as possible. So those people just can't afford to eat here, but they are still a part of your community. So I think that there's a lot of restaurants and restaurateurs that are having that wake up call now. And to me, what that looks like is it means hiring people from your community, going to community organizations like down the street, and saying, hey, you help young people. Are there young kids that are looking for jobs? It's reaching out to those organizations. It's uh, donating to those organizations. Great. Okay, you live in a neighborhood that is in what you know they call transition, uh, which is just a weird word for that. And you say, okay, half the people in this community can afford to eat here, and the other half can't. So how can I harness that 
those people who can't afford to help the other ones. Like both of our restaurants, we always had a giving component. And I'm not just talking about like, you know, when you get the project open hand, you know, 300 person gala with the rich people and you have a table and make a fancy hors d'oeuvre. I'm talking about like just regular community engagement and giving. So um, it started with Juhu. The first year we were open was when Zimmerman was acquitted for killing Trayvon Martin seven years ago. And I was just like, we got to do something about this. Um, we got to say something about this. It was also when uh, Alicia Garza, Opal Tometi, and Patrice Cullors uh, created the hashtag Black Lives Matter. So we did this black doll for Black Lives Matter and we put it on the menu. It made a lot of people really uncomfortable and I was really okay with that. Um, and we gave a dollar uh, for every bowl sold to uh, Bay Area Black Lives Matter and Blackout Collective. And then we continued doing that with other causes. Uh, and then when we opened Navi, we decided to literally just dedicate like three different menu items to different causes 24-7. One of them was Destiny Arts, which is literally right down the street. Destiny Arts is like one of the most amazing organizations. On the face of it, they teach young children, self-defense and dance, but they actually do so much more than that. They are counselors. They are like fill-in parents. They are everything to these kids. And these kids just grow so much from being a part of this program. So to me, giving to organizations like that is like being a part of a community, just to bring it back to the restaurant. That is how you can show your support to a community and not just go, okay, well, some people can't afford to eat here, so too bad. I've heard you talk about what organizations you support, but you made a distinction that I thought was interesting between the national and what's around you. The thing that you personally relate to, like you maybe would give to LGBTQ organizations, but actually when you look in your own community, it's a different set of organizations that beckon you because you're trying to support the people around you. Can you talk about that a little bit? Um, I think that, you know, when you look at undocumented folks in our communities, those are the people, people who are in the prison system. Those are the people that need our help. Homelessness in uh, the Bay Area is just out of control and it breaks my heart. So those are the issues I see right outside my door. Yes, I'm queer. I'm an immigrant. I'm Asian American. I'm a marginalized person in our society. And yet what I see right outside my door that are the challenges, those are the things that I want to try to help with as well, because it's, I mean, that's the whole point of intersectionality. Like it's just, it's not just about you and the stuff that affects you. So to me, those are the most important things is is helping the people right next door. Like, what's your problem? And, and how can I help? And I also think that, you know, I mean, there's only so many things you can donate to. And sometimes making a larger impact with a couple things is better than giving everybody a dollar. Um, and, you know, even when we started Black Doll for Black Lives Matter, I mean, we were just a 40 seat restaurant. It just opened that year. We weren't that popular. It was before the entire food media cared about queer people of color cooking food. It was seven years ago. So, it, you know, we weren't like that busy and we didn't raise that much money the first year. And I was really kind of bummed about it at one point, you know, you know, because at that time they were like, Blackout Collective had uh, shut down the BART. I remember this this visual of this one woman literally a bike lock around her neck to this pole. And it was so powerful. And my wife was like, if we just raise enough money for one more bike lock or another box of Sharpies to make signs. So it's like, yes, 
the one thing to know is that the littlest amount is something. And then also just to channel sort of what are the important things to you and your community and focus on a couple and not chase your tail trying to like be about everything. You you talk about the word hope and how you find it kind of annoying because it's passive, but the notion of possibility being a much stronger word. What possibilities do you see that you'd like to manifest? I mean, I think the the biggest possibility I'd like to see is that right now, I do believe that the whole restaurant industry and food system is broken. And it's been broken for a long time. Yet, I personally, I still really love restaurants. And I love restaurant people. And I love what we bring to our communities, whether that's in this moment of essential services where it's just that takeout box or that meal kit or it's actually gathering in mass and being able to enjoy a meal around a table with a group of people. So what I would love to be able to manifest and and I'm not going to totally say that I'm passive in this. I there's some people I'm talking to and things we're working on is creating a sustainable restaurant environment. That means all the things. It means first and foremost, customers valuing the food and the people who cook it to a place where we stop hearing that's overpriced and that they actually understand the value of food cooked with fresh ingredients by people who are valued, by people who are paid a living wage to be able to exist in that community to have healthcare, to have transportation, to be able to like send their kids to college, all of those things working in concert together. And I don't think that there's any way that that's going to happen without a massive shift in how we think about and how we run restaurants, because the way we've been doing it is that we keep just trying to fix a system that was based on inequities. And so I think we just have to throw the entire system out the window and think about everything differently. I get that there's a lot of restaurants out there that do exploit their workers and their CEOs making millions, but the average mom and mom or mom and pop shop in your neighborhood, those folks are just trying to get by. <laughs> and that's not fair because those are the places we love. Those are the places that really bring us together. So so I, I want to try to be a part of that change because I don't want to believe that it's just hopeless. I think it involves redistribution of a lot of wealth. I think it involves redistribution of land. And and I think that, you know, Americans spend the least amount of money on food than any other country in the world. You know, when I say redistribution of wealth, I mean, like if, yeah, but we're paying 50% of our income in rent, but you know, we spend what, like five, 10% on food. I mean, that's messed up. I can't wait to hear the project that you're working on that I'll address those just gigantic issues because in, indeed, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. There has to be another way to create an industry where people can be paid fairly and the food's delicious. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I, I just want to say in terms of possibility, if, if you, if anybody hears this and thinks that everything I just said is just like ridiculously impossible, like I'm talking to Dana Cowan today, like who would have thought about these issues about Black Lives Matter? Who would have thought that would have happened 10 years ago? Not a lot of people. So there's a lot of possibility, you know? I mean, I feel like my entire freaking life is about like looking back and going, wow, I never would have believe that this would be happening or that would be happening. I mean, everything from Black Lives Matter to Me Too and all the things we've talked about in the last five years in our industry, I have just been beside myself because I'm like, holy shit, 
I've seen these things for 15, 20 years, and I never, ever imagined that mainstream food media and chefs of, you know, note would be actually grappling with these issues and talking about them. It's possible. It is all possible. And you're right, when I think about where we began this conversation, which started with Fab a year ago, I think the number of people open to the conversation and actively working to change it is exponentially greater today than it was you know, a year ago. I, I totally agree with you that so many more people are open to, to being a part of the change. And I also want to recognize that not just for myself, but for a, a lot of folks who've been about change for a long time, that I'm so happy to see the needle moving forward. And I welcome everybody who's joining the fight. I also want to say, like, welcome, have a seat, have a listen, and talk to the people in your community that have already been doing this stuff before you go out and just say, oh, I'm going to do this now. And that's where you start with your change. At the end of each show, I ask my guest to pay it forward to someone who they believe deserves to be better known, someone who inspires them in the world of food and hospitality. And I, I wonder who that would be for you. Well, someone that I think has just gotten a little bit of attention recently, but the person I'm talking about is actually deceased, and that's uh, Raji Jalapali. She died when she was 52, and she was an Indian woman chef in Memphis who opened an, a French Indian restaurant. That's what she said it was, French Indian fusion, in the 90s. And, and then she was recruited to be the executive chef at Tamarind Restaurant in New York and was actually uh, reviewed, got two stars from William Grimes. And she sort of gets forgotten. I, uh, Mayuk Sen wrote a really beautiful piece about her recently. And I think, I believe he told me that I was the one who, he, who told him about her. <laughs> he hadn't heard of her. Um, so I got her book as a gift right when I graduated from culinary school. She, she had already passed away. And to me, it was just amazing because like the idea that there was an Indian woman making food that was like, you know, I just graduated from culinary school. Like I saw myself very differently than my mother and my grandmother and aunts. And like, I'm a chef, I'm going to be a chef. Um, and you know, there she was in her chef whites making this, you know, fine dining and like tandoori roast squab with like this, I don't know, like cranberry chutney or something like just these dishes that were really like, wow. Cause I always knew when I went to culinary school that I would eventually cook Indian food, but I wanted to like learn like the professional way. It's like a good Asian immigrant in me, like go to school. So to me, that was the first chef I ever saw that was like really doing something like that. Um, and it blew my mind and that, and that was a woman. So, you know, that was a real inspiration to me. And I think that oftentimes, especially women in our industry and especially in, in Indian culture, as well as in America, like we tend to focus on uh, these male heroes that sort of continue, but the women get forgotten, which, you know, I mean, we've seen that throughout history. So she's a person that was an inspiration to me. I wish I could have met her. I, I have communicated with her son a couple times, which is pretty cool. I'm so glad you brought her up. Thank you for that. And I also ask if there's a, a product or something that is overlooked and better than the hype. And it can be anything from a magic eraser to a bench scraper. Um, you know, I would say like whole spices. I've had people say like 
they've never had Indian food like mine before or like the best Indian food. And I'm like, it's not rocket science. <laughs> like I'm not, I'm like, what are these other people doing? Uh, so I think one of the things is that people really overlook is uh, the freshness of their spices. And also, even if you have spices that might like in the whole form that are older, like a year or two old, just roasting and grinding them fresh in the moment. Like I think we spend so much time in our, you know, local seasonal farmer's markets, grass fed beef, like organic chicken, you know, getting the best of the best heritage pork and wild caught, you know, Dungeness crab. But then we just like get this like box from the Indian grocery store of ground spices and just like you know, sprinkle it on stuff. And I, I mean, I had my own aha moment. I mean, it's, it's just like anything else, right? Like we all know, like we don't drink Nescafe anymore. Um, I think it just, most people will be just really blown away by the flavor. The first time they actually just like, you know, measure out roast and grind their own spice blend and put it on their food or in their food. You'll be like, oh, wow. Yeah. Duh. Um, amazing. And do you have a re reliable source for your whole spices that maybe people should know about? Um, I mean, there's a, there's a few, uh, I have to say like from the restaurant, I really, uh, Vicks in Berkeley, they're sort of my biggest supplier. I mean, I've been buying diaspora turmeric for the last three years and some of her other stuff. She has cardamom now, black pepper and a red chili, um, burlap and barrel have a lot of really great spices sourced from around the world. And then I think both of those are online diaspora and burlap and barrel, as well as Oaktown spice shop in Oakland. They do a great job. And then like on a more like a national level of just like a lot of different spices, Calusians, um, based in New York, as well as Penzies, which also has very great politics. I've launched something called tiny kitchen miracles. And I'm curious if you have a tiny kitchen miracle. It's taking something that's, very ordinary and making a dish with it quickly. I used to make uh, popcorn with ghee. And one day at the restaurant, I accidentally mistook bacon fat for the ghee. And that was the tiniest miracle happy accident. Um, <laughs> I drizzled bacon fat on popcorn. It was insane. And I just like added some salt. And I mean, I had to start over with, with the other dish I was making for the restaurant, which actually needed ghee. Um, but you know, here was this giant bowl of like 10 quarts of popcorn that had bacon fat on it. And so I just like added some salt and some chili powder. Um, I use like an Indian chili powder and, and I literally like after the first like two minutes, I had to start texting people because I was so afraid that I was just going to literally eat the whole thing. <laughs> I'm going to try this because I actually have some reserved bacon fat hanging around. Well, um, it has been an absolute delight to have you on Speaking Broadly. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me from, from Sonoma. I've admired your food. I've admired your work, your activism, and your ability to speak out be heard and try to try to roughen the seas to help us all learn. So thank you. And for those of you listening, thank you for joining us today. I hope you learned a lot from Preeti. I know that I did. And I uh, hope you'll join me again next week for another episode of Speaking Broadly. Have a great week. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.